Welcome to Soundings Podcast. I'm Dudley Evanson, and for more than four decades, my husband Dean Evanson and I have created music and media that supports people and the planet. In our Soundings Podcast, we'll be sharing interviews with wisdom keepers we have met in the course of our life journey. To learn more about our activities and releases, please visit our website and blog at soundings.com. This podcast features an interview with Joshua Leeds from our Sonic Healing Meet the Masters video course. Joshua Leeds is a sound researcher, author, music producer, and educator. He is one of the few published authorities in the field of psychoacoustics, the study of the effects of music and sound on the human nervous system. Collaborating with leaders in health, neurodevelopment, veterinary neurology, and animal behavior, Joshua's application-specific soundtracks are used in homes, clinics, and classrooms around the world. His bioacoustically designed soundtracks are also heard in canine environments. He has published numerous books and articles focusing on the therapeutic applications of music and sound. He conducts seminars for music, healthcare, and educational professionals. We hope you enjoy this interview. Please subscribe and rate. Thank you. Hi, my name is Joshua Leeds, and uh, I am so happy to have the opportunity to talk about this emerging field of sound work. Sometimes I feel like I could be on the chamber of commerce of sound because. I don't think that there's an area that does not excite me about this field. I don't come to the field of sound work with my own method, per se. I come to it as a composer, as a musician, as a producer, looking for the deeper elements within tone and rhythm. And it was from that that I began my journey into what I now term psychoacoustics, which is the study of the effect of music and sound on the human nervous system. Actually, I've come to realize recently that it's very narrow to even think about just psychoacoustics in relationship to human beings, because we can think about it in relationship to animals. We can think of it in relationship to agriculture. We can think of sound and music as being a manifestation of frequency and vibration. And so therefore, since everything on this planet basically vibrates, and we know that resonance is really the key to how it is that sound affects, then the truth is, is that we can consciously use music and sound. What is it that is in music that opens us up? From this, I've come to understand that actually the musician of the 21st century is not somebody who just works from the palette of uh, orchestration and arrangement and, and harmony and, and melody and, and rhythm, but now adds to that same palette the direct understanding of how to use those elements to affect the different pulse systems. By affecting the different pulse systems, we can create soundtracks that are conducive to specific activities. Now we can compare notes, and now there are clinical studies going on, and, and music and health and music and learning is a hip concept now. It's not one that we have to knock down the walls to say, hey, would you pay attention to this? Because people already love music, and that's one of the reasons why it's of such great 
interest to people because there's no armor about it. All of us as musicians know that, that universally it takes down the armor. People open up their hearts. They open up to music because it feels good. And so to now be able to say, we are finding a way to be able to use music and sound in very application-specific roles, processes. Nobody goes, oh yeah, really? They all go, great. I, I, I think about uh, music like chocolate. I love them both. And if somebody said to me, you know, we've just figured out that if you get sick and you go down to the best chocolate shop in town and buy three pieces, only three, not two, not four, but three pieces of the finest chocolate you can find and then take that chocolate and have one piece every day at five o'clock and you'll feel great. Wouldn't we all go, fantastic. Wouldn't we all just go, how wonderful. Well, it's the same thing with music. It's not an uphill battle. People are totally receptive to the idea of using music and sound. And so what I have discovered and what I've taken back into my producing after writing the books and doing lots of research and standing on the shoulders of, of the people who have been before me in this field, of which is what we all do. We stand on each other's shoulders and that's how evolution takes place. Is that there are basically five primary elements as a producer that I keep in mind. I have over 30 soundtracks that are used in clinics and classrooms around the world now. I'm a fortunate person. I've been blessed. I, I'm able to make my living creating these psychoacoustic soundtracks. And whether or not it's for pain control or whether or not it's for neurodevelopmental issues or whether or not it's for the classroom and accelerated learning or whether or not it's for people that are recovering from surgery, the same considerations apply. And basically, this is what I believe are the components, the primary components that I now have added to my palette when I go to paint with sound. Number one is intentionality. What do you want to accomplish? Who's going to listen to it? And what do you want to take place? What is the physical and the emotional and the mental and even the spiritual, although sometimes we don't have control of all those things, but what is the space that is most conducive to the activities that we want to take place? And then once we determine that, then it comes down to the use of resonance, meaning what kind of tones are we going to use? Are we going to use high tones or are we going to use mid-tones or low-tones or whatever combination low-tones tend to relax. The second aspect is entrainment and to me that is really if I only had one tool that I could use I was on a desert island and there was only one thing for me to do with music and sound to affect change. The easiest way to affect change on the nervous system is with rhythm. And that's called entrainment. We're all encoded with the, um, on a cellular level, we are all encoded to entrain to a periodic external rhythm. And we could get into a whole conversation, of course, about the nature of rhythm 
inside the body, the nature of rhythm in the cosmology of everything. It's everywhere. The undulation of life is everywhere. And through rhythm, we know that we can cause the primary pulse systems to speed up or slow down. I've been spending a lot of uh, focus time on thinking about pattern identification and whether or not we want to create active listening or whether or not we want to create passive hearing. Active listening where, where the middle ear, the tiny, two tiny muscles of the middle ear are pulled tight. The three bones are working hard. We're at the gym. We are in aerobics in active listening. And active listening is another tool to excite, to stimulate. And yet if you're doing a soundtrack for somebody in a hospital, then you don't really want to have them in active listening. Actually, you might want to help them to be in passive hearing. Hearing being the analog to, let's say, seeing and listening, active listening, being the analog on a visual level, looking. Looking and listening are active perceptual processes. And whereas hearing and seeing are more passive. You know, the brain is always scanning. It's always looking to find the pattern because we have so many things to do. The brain has so many things to keep track of, like, gosh, I hope I'm not drooling right now on the camera, right? Like, or I'm hoping that my words are making sense or that I'm talking loud enough or that I'm making sense. So many things to think about aside from the functions of the body. And so the body, the, the brain is always looking to find a pattern so it can get on to the next thing. But if we use sound and random sonic events, which is another principle that Tomatus called gating, then it's another way for us to engage or not the nervous system, the brain. And so now when we start to put these things together, what's the tonal quality? What's the resonance? What's the entrainment? What are the rhythms that are going on? What's the pattern identification? Is it active or is it passive? And then to that I would add uh, finally uh, what I call sonic neurotechnologies, meaning sound technologies that affect the neurology. And whether or not they're binaural beat frequencies or whether or not it's tomatus-oriented filtration and gating or whether or not it's this wonderful new technology that is coming out of China, Qigong energy that they have found a way to be able to actually dial up with sound or whether or not it's the cymatics work that's coming out of uh, England. Um, we have the opportunity to take the resonance entrainment pattern identification, and as if that isn't strong enough, now add in a post-production phase sonic neurotechnologies, the binaural frequencies, filtration, gating, whatever. When you put all of those guys together, then now we have soundtracks that can have a very fast, potent, and efficient effect on the nervous system. And so now we have the opportunity to sculpt vibration which has been done for thousands and thousands of years, but with a clear intention about it, an understanding of why we are affecting. And that's how I started my journey. How and why? Why do some things affect differently? And, and now I'm, I'm 15, 20 years into it and just beginning to understand it. And the more that I understand it, the more that I see that this is a fantastic field and I welcome anybody who is called by Apollo to do this work. So Alfred Tomatis, who passed away in 2001 at the ripe old age of 81, uh, 
will come to be known as the father of modern-day psychoacoustics. And when I talk about psychoacoustics, then I'm thinking uh, far beyond sound healing, because that's too limiting as far as I'm concerned. We can use music and sound to enhance human function. We can use it to, you, to affect what already works well and help it to work even better. In other words, sound becomes a tremendous tool of human potential. And yes, healing is a part of it, but it's not the only part of it. The full, broad process of using sound is about how do we enhance human function. Tomatis to psychoacoustics is like Freud to psychoanalysis. He's the one, he, he, it's not perfect. His theories, people have some questions, considerations about them. They wonder about some of the science involved in his theories, but what they do know is that his bottom line, that sound is a nutrient for the nervous system, really cannot be argued with. And so if we just use that one extraordinary concept, so simple and yet at the same time so extraordinary, sound is a nutrient for the nervous system then from there we start to understand the role of the auditory mechanism in being able to take in sound. How important this is for taking in the nutrients, just like how important this is for being able to take in the nutrients of food. So Tomatis, amongst many things, developed a system, his method, the Tomatis method, that is utilized in over 250 centers around the world. Most of them interestingly enough, in Europe, because of the FDA. All right. However, uh, like so many extraordinary things that uh, are being used around the world, the Tomatis work, uh, sometimes referred to as sound stimulation, uh, is finding its way into American practice. Speech and language pathologist, audiologist, occupational therapist, psychologist, doctors, psychiatrists, are beginning to understand that the role of the auditory mechanism is so important. One of the things that Tomatis came to understand is when there is a neurodevelopmental issue known uh, where we, that we could refer to as auditory sequential processing, the ability to remember a sequence of tones, da 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 dum, that's a sequence of tone, and so uh, it. For me to go, okay, what was that that I just did? Oh, da 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 dum is a sequence of tones, an auditory sequential processing, and it is one of the foundations of short-term memory. Short-term memory is one of the foundations of thinking. When there's a neurodevelopmental issue, quite often short-term thinking, auditory sequential processing is challenged. It's hampered. It's not working quite right. Tomatis came to understand that there was a direct relationship between auditory sequential processing, which is a neocortex issue, and auditory tonal processing, which is the ability to distinguish between two tones, higher or lower. Ah, ah, second tone is higher. Ah, ah, second tone is lower. Auditory tonal processing is a middle ear issue. And what he discovered was there was a way to actually remediate middle ear function 
that would be like putting a key in the lock to open up dealing with auditory sequential processing. Now this is quite extraordinary because um, I've had the opportunity to, I was involved in the development of a Tomatis derivative called the Listening Program in 1999. And I was on the training team of, of 600 professionals. And when I would discuss with them, why are you here? They, were, they would always say to me, we have come to understand that there is somehow a link between what is going on in the brain and what is going on in the auditory channel. And Tomatis found that by doing two things, by filtering sound, gradually taking out the lowest frequencies in a soundtrack, and by also doing something that he calls gating, that I call random sonic events, meaning that the brain can't find the pattern because something happens in the soundtrack that disturbs the pattern. It causes the three tiny bones, the ossicles in the middle ear, and the two tiny muscles to stay in an active phase. It's like sending the middle ear to the gym. That's the reason why uh, it's been called aerobics. The idea of taking that function and giving it exercise. And by giving it exercise, it allows for a greater spectrum of sound, for us to take in a fuller spectrum of sound. Connect that in with sound being a nutrient for the nervous system, and you start to see the linkage of all of these things. If somebody has got a funky middle ear function, it's gonna, it very possibly will show up in a neurodevelopmental issue. Is that a learning problem? Is it an attention problem? Is it a stuttering problem? Is it an autistic issue? Is it a memory issue? Is it a connection between uh, muscle and, and movement? All of these things, if you were to say to somebody, these things all have a relationship with the ear, I uh, am a great proponent for moving sound out of the context of just being healing. Because, number one, there is the issue of what is healing. What does that mean, to heal? Can anybody heal somebody else? Uh, I could never say that my music, or for that matter, that anybody else's music, is going to heal somebody. I think the best thing that we can say is, how do we create soundtracks for health that will create uh, an environment that is conducive to somebody's own self-healing? In other words, how do we help them along? How do we create the environment? And even though I am always looking for ways to work outside of the realm of music and healing, it's interesting that I find myself being pulled back into that arena quite often. And so over the last number of years, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this concept of sound as a nutrient. And I also found myself in a situation where I had a health issue. And this health issue at times made me feel like I was wearing my nerves on the outside of my skin. I was in a lot of pain. And I found that the more that I was troubled with pain, the less energy I had to give to external perceptual processes. When somebody gets really sick, they put them in a room and they even pull down the blinds. Because even light is too much 
for the immune system to take in. And I became aware of the fact that when somebody has a chronic condition, it's very difficult to take in a lot of sound. But yet, if we accept the fact that sound is a nutrient for the nervous system, people that get sick need sound more than anybody. And so I spent a bit of time just mulling this over. I needed to find a way to be able to offer sound in a way that they could be assimilated. And I, I have a real love for classical music because I just find it to be, uh, it's just a, a perfect form of music. And so people love the music of Mozart or Beethoven or Chopin or Schumann or Vivaldi, any of the wonderful geniuses that lived a couple hundred years ago. And I started to think what it would take to be able to create very safe soundtracks. When I say safe, where people just could, like a, like a blankie. I want my blankie, you know. It's like, I want to just wrap myself in this musical soundtrack, like a, like a favorite blanket. What would it take to create that whereby it would be simple enough that like a food that was perfect to help heal, to help support the process of healing? What kind of sound would do that? And I, I ended up evolving something that I call simple sound. It's not a new concept. It's just the way that I happen to have put it together, which is how do we take sound and reduce the complexity of the harmonics, of the melody, of the, um, harmo uh, the harmonic content. The auditory system is so curious, it's in, it, it deciphers everything in sound. So if you have a symphonic score, which I adore, but nonetheless, it's making the auditory system work very hard. And if the auditory system has to work hard, it's taking away energy from the immune system or it's calling upon the nervous system to give up energy that it might not want to give up because it's using it to heal. And so I began to simplify orchestrations. Um, I then began to also work with this process of complexity in terms of active listening versus passive hearing. And so again, making sound simple, like a beautiful flute just by itself, is so much easier to take in than if you're listening to let's say a woodwind ensemble. Uh, solo instruments became a focus for me because it's easy. The auditory system doesn't have to work hard to delineate. But then I realized that it was also possible to be able to add to that and I went from solo instruments to duos and to trios and I created the Apollo Ensemble. But the truth of the matter is, is that really it's the most simple things that really have an effect, have a deep, deep effect. And for me now, 20 years into this field, this is what I come to know. Music is simple. And if we take all the complexities of music that we've gone to conservatories to study and we've read about and played for thousands of hours, if we take that and we bring it down to its essence, chances are it will have a more profound effect on the nervous system than the fanciest lick that we can play or the most extraordinary arrangement.
I think that sometimes less is more. And for me, essential sound is a journey into the process of creating effective, potent, powerful soundtracks that aid people in their own self-healing. Uh, Vibra Acoustics, the consideration of the application of sound directly onto the body, seems to be moving forward in a wonderful way. One of those areas is around the use of bone conduction. Uh, we know that sound moves uh, 13 times faster through a direct application with bone than it does through air. And uh, the Tomatis people, for a long time, have been using um, uh, uh, the application onto the bone as opposed to just into the ear as a way of being able to prepare the nervous system for what it is that's going to then be coming in through the, through the headphones. Uh, an area that is just reporting results uh, very recently in the last month is about the use of focused ultrasound in relationship to the treatment of prostate cancer or in conditions of the liver. So uh, as we can see, the therapeutic applications of music and sound continue to deepen. Don Campbell and a number of other people are doing very interesting work on the use of music and sound as an ambient force within hospitals. And this to me is a wonderful thing because as we know, when you go into a hospital setting, the noise uh, pollution does not necessarily contribute to the quickest level of healing. Um, politics makes ba strange bedfellows, as we know. Uh, the fact that the HMOs now basically are running so much of what's taking place in hospital care, they're saying if we can get people out of intensive care faster, if we can get people released from the hospital a day or two earlier, then it's not so much whether or not the American Medical Association thinks that it's uh, the loveliest idea. It's about the fact that if we know that acupuncture, 3,500-year-old therapeutic force, can help people to leave a hospital quicker, then the HMOs, the accountants running it with their, with their beans counting and with, their, with, the, with keeping track of spreadsheets and money, they're saying, you know what? Uh, acupuncture is good with us, guided imagery is good with us, music therapy is good with us. And so interestingly enough, money has served as an issue to bring in these alternative considerations into hospital care, even though uh, the AMA or the FDA may be going, well, we're not so sure about that 3,500-year-old treatment called acupuncture. Um, the research that is taking place is daunting to keep track of because interestingly enough there is so much of it. What I have uh, noticed as I've been accumulating uh, research uh, is the work that, uh, you know, Europe, these guys have got it going on there. And uh, the work about music and the heart and music in the coronary context, one of the things that I was just understanding is that as far back as 1918, people were beginning to research the effect of tones and increased pulse rate and lowered blood pressure. So this goes way back, but the difference is that now that we've got the high-tech imaging systems, now that we've got the PET scans and the MRIs, and the, 
that kind of thing that can actually measure it within the brain and within the organs, then there is an increased level of activity in terms of what's taking place with research. A lot of it around heart and cardiac. Uh, there is a, a, a study that came out about the effect of rosary prayer and yoga mantras on autonomic cardiovascular rhythms. And how interesting is that, that, that people would begin to study literally the effect of entrainment through a vocal level of counting rosary beads or yoga mantras and seeing that there is an actual autonomic cardiovascular response to that. There's an interesting study about arrhythmia and electrophysiology, dynamic interactions between musical, cardiovascular, and cerebral rhythms in humans that has just come out. There's a pilot study of patients in post-operative cardiac surgery. The idea of music for stress and anxiety reduction in coronary heart disease patients. Music for pain relief. A study that just was published by Scientific American in June of 2009, very recent, about new research explains music's power over human emotions and its benefits to our mental and physical well-being. The idea of medicine and music, the use of specially designed music in intensive care sections run by the Danish State Hospital. As you can see, this just keeps on going on and on. One of the people here in America who is uh, currently doing extraordinary research, uh, there are actually two people that I'd like to speak about. One of them is a Michael Tau, T-H-A-U-T. He's a professor uh, at uh, a university in Colorado. And uh, he is doing absolutely extraordinary work on Parkinson's and sound. The effect of sound in an entrainment function Somebody else who's doing quite extraordinary research is John Billiou. He's been working with SUNY, the State University of New York, and their different uh, facilities to be able to study what is going on on a molecular level with sound. And uh, I highly encourage anybody who's interested in understanding this to go directly to the websites of John Billiou uh, to be able to understand this, but it is about the effect of sound on nitric oxide. And it has to do with the puffing action of the nitric oxide molecule, and how at times when our health is diminished, the puffing mechanism, if I'm understanding this research correctly, is weakened. And that what the, their research has shown is by the applications of different kinds of sound and or music that they are able to actually recalibrate the puffing mechanism that takes place within the nitric oxide molecule. And so it's a marvelous time in our field because we get to be able to not only experience the left brain intuitive process of toning and bells and bowls and, and rhythm and singing and dancing and movement, 
but we also have the opportunity to see how it is the direct application of highly precise frequencies on the nervous system. Uh, cymatics and uh, uh, the cymoscope that has been developed by John Reed out of, out of England and how we're able to see images that continue to reinforce the fact that sound on particles, which was explored by Hans Jenny back in the 50s and in the 60s, that has now been taken uh, by Emoto out of Japan, where they're able to show the effect of sound frequencies on water, the effect, uh, the work of John Reed and other people in the Sima therapy and Sima um, cymatics area has brought forth extraordinary images. So the consideration of frequency and how we use frequency, whether or not it's an ultrasound or whether or not it's in our own toning or whether or not it's in our awareness of the sound environment in our homes, in relationship to our children, in relationship to our animals, in relationship to what happens with an overwhelmed, chronically overwhelmed nervous system from too much stimulation? And what is the effect of that on a diminished immune function? This for me is a very focused area of my work now. Sensory integration. If we know that frequency comes into all of our sensory organs, how is it that it is affecting us? When is it too much? What is the effect of a nervous system that is constantly bombarded with a level of sensory data that it turns into sensory overload? We see that a lot uh, in children and adults that are either overly sensitive or hypersensitive or children and adults who have got some kind of neurodevelopmental issue. Uh, people in the autistic spectrum can actually hear the sound of electricity in the walls. We can't hear it, but they can. So they're surrounded with that all the time. And it must be terrible because they can't turn it off because we're surrounded by high-frequency wires, uh, Wi-Fi, cellular frequencies, uh, all the time. Now, in our threshold, in a, in a normal context of what we consider to be a broad normal range, we don't hear it. But what is the effect of it even though we don't hear it? on our nervous system. What happens when we are chronically overwhelmed on a sensorial level, whether or not it's auditory, uh, olfactory, visual, kinesthetic? Where is it that the overwhelm of our nervous system by having too much data to process translates into a diminished immune function? And for me, this is now the thrust of my work in sound, is to be able to help people to understand the necessity of the creation of sound environments that are conducive to health and well-being. Uh, sensorial environments, to take it a step for, further, that are conducive to health and well-being.
Thank you for listening to our Soundings podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this program. To learn more about our music, guided meditations, and videos, please visit our website and blog at soundings.com. Peace through music blessings.